available often. The Light, 88.7 FM, WAGP, Beaufort, Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. And if you have an issue that you are facing in your personal life or ministry, and you have a question, you can text us uh, directly here into the studio, or you can call us toll-free at 877, the call letters WAGP 980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to our receptionist, Deb, and she'll uh, email it right here into our studio. Uh, Rick, we have a new uh, text address, and what is that? It is tbl at wagp.us. Okay, so tbl at wagp.us if you want to text us directly here into the studio. The local number for our non-internet listeners is 843-525-1859. Let's go ahead and we'll get started, Rick. All right, we had a a couple of questions left over from last week. Uh, Caller would like to know if it is okay for Christians to invest in the stock market and uh, do some foreign exchange trading as well. Okay, that's a that's a good question, and it uh, comes up in a course that I teach on the Bible in your finances. Uh, we call it the theology of money, uh, or you and your finances, and uh, that is available at searchthescriptures.org. I think we've played it before in our Institute of Biblical Studies. I haven't taught it in a long, long time. I think I'll teach it again, maybe if the Lord will allow me in 2018. Uh, here, here's the issue that's really at hand. Some people think that buying stocks is equivalent to gambling. And since God's word speaks against gambling, therefore we should not invest in the stock market. But I think there's a difference between gambling, say, at a casino or buying a lottery ticket and buying stock. Uh, gamblers uh, introduce themselves to risk, which they know they will probably lose but they hope that they'll get quote unquote lucky and as a result make money. And of course, uh, God's word speaks against uh, a desire to get rich. Uh, Proverbs 28 says a faithful man will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. And likewise, when Paul writes to Timothy in first Timothy chapter six, he gives some very pointed advice. It's really a warning as much as anything. In first Timothy uh, chapter six and verse 10, he says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. So God warns against the love of money. Uh, it's a a verse that is often misquoted and it doesn't say it is the root, but a root of all sorts of evil. And so 
if you seek the earthly things only rather than setting your affections on those things that are above, you can get into trouble. Some people have uh, departed from the faith, wandered away from the faith, not really rejected the faith, but wandered away. Why? Because their affection is in the here and now rather than in the Great Commission and the things that truly matter in life. So God, God asks us to, to guard our hearts in, in that respect. We need to be very, very careful when it comes to money. But when, again, when we get back to the stock market, there's some biblical principles. One is uh, you should be informed in terms of what you are doing. Some people buy stocks, you know, someone gives them a tip and they say, oh, this is something that you should put your money into and they don't really know much about the company. And, but really when, what you're doing when you buy stock is you're buying ownership in a portion of a company. And so you are uh, participating with that company in what they are about. So hopefully too, you'll consider what they represent, what they stand for as a company. Uh, you certainly don't want to put, you know, stock in some evil, wicked pornographic empire, for instance. Um, but again, you're, you're buying a portion of the company and there's a principle taught in Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, in essence, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, let me just turn there for a second. It's in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and he comes to the end of his life and gives some really sound advice as much as anything through the mistakes that he had made. In Ecclesiastes 11:2, he says, divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. And so basically he's saying, spread, spread your investment. Don't, don't put all your eggs into one basket, so to speak. And that's a, that's a good principle when it comes to approaching stocks. Certainly there are stocks that are rated on different levels. And so if you go to a stock broker, he may ask you, well, are you interested in high risk stocks, medium risk, low risk? And most of the time they'll take a combination uh, if someone's older, uh, you know, between medium and low risk, or maybe if they're soon to retire, very low risk all across the board. One of the challenges that we face right now for a lot of people who are saving for retirement is it used to be they could get, you know, six, eight. I remember there was a time when interest was at 15%. Uh, when I was in seminary, if you had a CD, you could get 15% interest. Uh, those days may come back, um, but so people right now, when they get a half percent or percent and a half, you know, they get a little frustrated, so they, they have uh, put their money in the stock market. I personally think the stock market is going to burst. I think there's a big bubble. Even Greenspan came out last week warning uh, of what is actually happening in the stock market. We keep seeing the uh, levels go up and up and up. But actually, if you study the analysis carefully, it's a lot of the technology stocks that are driving the stock market up. But a lot of stocks, I think it was like 49%, are level or decreasing. So it looks very attractive to a lot of people. And maybe if they are in tech stocks, they've made some money. But you've got to be careful here in a lot of the companies uh, who have very elevated prices do not reflect reality in terms of what their assets are and what, what is real. But because people can't earn any money in the bank, uh, they're putting their money in the stock market. But, you know, traditionally, 
Uh, those things don't last forever. And, and when you go into the stock market, it's kind of a long-term thing. So that's kind of the quick answer. But let me pause for a second to say that investing is just one aspect of what God teaches on money. So I have a course on the theology of money, and it begins with stewardship, that it's not really our money, it's God's money. And one of the areas in which we will give an account to the Lord someday when we meet him in heaven, assuming we've been saved by grace, is how we have used the money that he has put in our hands. So you want to find out, one, what your responsibility is as a steward as it relates to, to giving. Uh, God's word teaches a whole lot about giving, and a lot of Christians today are in financial trouble because they put God last rather than putting God first. And I believe it begins with the tithe, that the scriptural principle of giving 10% of your income to the Lord is still binding on the church today, that it's not merely part of God's ceremonial or Mosaic law, but it was done ever before the Mosaic law was given as modeled through the father of the faith, Abraham. So I think tithing has full application for today, though it's been popular since the 1920s, largely introduced through C.I. Schofield to say that it was simply something for the Jews. And, and some would say today to discourage you, it wasn't 10%, it was 13% or 23%. And I go through all those issues in my course on the theology of money. And we look at those verses in context. So as stewards, we need to know what God says about giving. We need to know what God says about saving. Uh, some of the stats that come out in reference to the average American family in terms of saving, it's really kind of tragic. Um, you know, there's, I think it said like 35% of American families have less than $500 in savings. Uh, that's, that's not good because God teaches uh, us in passages like Proverbs 6 that we learn a lesson from the ant. And so in her time of plenty, she saves so that in her time of need, she has something. So if the transmission breaks in the car this week and it costs $2,500 to fix and you don't have $2,500 in the bank to pay for it and you have to put it on the credit card, not, to, not for convenience sake, but because you don't have the money in the bank, uh, that's not a good thing. That's not a healthy situation. Uh, and again, uh, what God says about debt is a very, very important thing. The government just published some new numbers in the last week where now the credit card debt is higher than it was in 2007. So we have, I think it was $1.27 trillion in credit card debt. We also just broke a new record since 2008, the last big slump in the economy, is we've gone over a trillion dollars in car debt. And again, uh, I think even the car businesses are beginning to feel this because people can only borrow so much money for so long. We've also hit another record. We've gone over a trillion dollars in student loan debt. And of course, part of that, I think, is driven by the policies our own government has made with the FASTA thing. You know, I watched my kids go through college and just the tuition just kept climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. And part of it is because the government basically said, you can have whatever money you want. And they were so free and loose that the universities began to drive up prices for everything, bigger salaries, more buildings, everything, because the money was pouring in and they knew they could get it. Well, again, you, you can't borrow money. So I, I meet, you know, young couples who want to get married. And one of the requirements that I have for them, if I'm going to marry them, is they have to go through the course on the theology of money. And they go through, again, what the Bible says about stewardship, about 
uh, giving, about saving, about debt, and then about investing, which is the um, tenor of the question that's been presented to us this morning. Uh, And again, uh, when you look at the big picture of things, it's really tragic because I'm meeting these couples who, well, she's got $50,000 in college loans and he has $75,000 in college loans. And it's incredible. Um, and, and it's really put a lot of young families in, in difficulty and a lot of, uh, parents, uh, themselves that have barred for their kids. So these are things that need to be th- thought through very, very carefully. And I think this course that I teach, it's very extensive. It's not for the, for the faint of heart, but if you are serious and really want to find out what God says, take the course. You know, I know there are, you know, people out there uh, that offer financial courses, but most of them are not bathed in scripture. And because of that, the effect and the convictions tend to change because when some opportunity comes, people just run for it. But for instance, in reference to investing, I talk about earning the right to invest. And so if you have, say, credit card debt, you haven't earned the right to invest. You need to get rid of that credit card debt. And we we talk about getting debt free. We talk in that course about paying your mortgage off in 15 to 17 years instead of 30 years. Now, there's a lot of gimmickry out there on the Internet saying, you know, used to be President Obama and I was President Trump and there's this program and you can down pay your mortgage. And well, it's, it's not a trick and there's no government program to do it, but there are ways to save money. And you need to look at that. Now, there are certainly aspects of the stock market like day trading and things like that that I think can be very foolish and they really do mimic gambling. So, again, I address this in great detail in the course right down to stocks and investing and things like that on the theology of money. And that's available at searchthescriptures.org and you can download uh, the uh, the the uh, various uh, messages that are done. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, we actually had a couple of people that asked similar questions. Lutrika from Sylvania, Georgia, wanted to know uh, what type of uh, Bible you recommend. She currently is using the King James. And Bill in Virginia knows that you have mentioned in the past that you use the uh, New American Standard, uh, but uh, would like to know what study Bible that it might be in the New American Standard you, you might prefer or recommend. Well, those are really huge questions. So let me see if I can um, combine the two uh, to this caller from Georgia that uses the King James. Look, if you grew up on the King James and you're used to the King James, it can be a wonderful translation for you. Uh, The challenge for a lot of new readers to the Bible is the King James uses a lot of archaic terminology that's very difficult to understand. In fact, one of my professors who at the time was teaching at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Norman Geisler made a list of words that mean virtually the opposite of what they meant in the 1700s, in the 17th century. You know, sometimes you'll see on the back of a car or something, you know, I read the 1611 only. Well, they're really not reading the 1611. They're reading the 1738 translation 
Uh, most people couldn't even make out a lot of the letters in the 1611. I have a page from original 1611 Bible in my office and it's uh, nicely framed and so forth. And it's uh, the letters look different. Even the letter S doesn't even look like a letter S. It looks like the letter F. So it would be very challenging for the average English reader to even read a 1611, not to mention the language was changing very, very fast. And so between the 1611 and what today we call the old King James, which is not the 1611, it's the 1738, there was over 100,000 changes. Not because God's word has changed. God's word never changes. It's forever settled in heaven. But the... Um, receptor language, namely the English tongue was changing very fast. So sometimes we use words like in Philippians four, it says, be careful for nothing. Well, look, uh, when you pull out of your parking lot for lunch and you have to get out onto the highway, be very careful. Look both ways. What do you mean? Be careful for nothing. Well, that's how Philippians four is rendered in the 1738, what we call the old King James the new King James, I think, says be anxious for nothing, as does the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. Uh, some of the translations say be worried for nothing, but the word anxious and worried didn't exist in the 17th century. And so the way you said it back then was uh, be careful for nothing. Uh, Peter talks about your conversation. He's not talking about just your words. He's actually talking about your lifestyle. So words change with meaning. If I asked you what lascivious meant, lasciviousness meant, a lot of people would kind of, you know, stare, give me a blank stare. But if I asked you what sensuality meant, oh yeah, I know what that is. Well, there are some words that, you know, are not always in common everyday English. And so the goal of a translator is to ask what word today best represents that particular Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic word, the three languages that God gave us the Bible in. And that's the challenge of every, every translator. Uh, now I preach out of the new American standard Bible. Why? Because I think it's such a precise translation and it's a very, very helpful translation. So let's get into uh, the study Bible issue. And I have a course by the way on it's entitled bibliology and we offer a 33 hour course of study called the Institute of Biblical Studies. And there are courses that are elective in nature. One of the elective courses is theology of money that I've already mentioned. Uh, some are non-elective courses like angelology or eschatology or Christology. And these are all words that come from Greek that describe various realms of theology like anthropology comes from the word anthropos, which is translated man in the Bible. And so the study of man in the Bible is called anthropology. Uh, harmardiology, which is usually studied under that heading, some will break it up into two. Harmatia is the word for sin. So harmardiology <laughs> is the study of what the Bible says about sin and how it came into the world and so forth. So uh, it's, it's helpful to... Uh, to focus on a particular realm. And so uh, in my course on bibliology, biblios book, uh, and so the, the Bible is the biblios, the hagios biblios, the holy Bible. Uh, bibliology is the study of the Bible. And one of the sections in the course is how we got our English Bible. Now I will tell you, I spend some time on 
study Bibles, but I could have spent more. But the course is over 500 pages of notes that you get. So it's a very in-depth course. Now, let me say the first English translations that we ever had were, in essence, study Bibles. William Tyndale uh, produced a Bible in the English tongue, and with it were his notes. And his notes were really challenging the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And because of that, he was strangled to death and then burned at the stake uh, because of his view on Romanism. Uh, later, the Geneva Bible came out in 1560, and it was basically um, done by a group of men in Geneva, and it reflected a lot of the teachings of John Calvin. And again, um, Calvin and some of the Reformed teachers of his day uh, were very harsh towards the Roman Catholic Church, and they spiritualized a lot of the passages in the Bible. Now, Calvin himself never wrote a commentary of the book of Revelation. He had difficulty trying to understand it, and that was largely due to his misunderstanding of the unconditional promises that God gave to the people of Israel. And that, in turn, influenced the way he looked at a lot of passages that dealt with election. When they were actually dealing with national election, God choosing Israel out of all the nations of the world to bring the Messiah, Romans 9, he made it personal election because he thought God was done with Israel. Uh, but one of the ways in which some of the Protestant reformers uh, interpreted Revelation was the historical method. They thought that uh, it wasn't really futuristic, the book, but it was describing different time frames in church history. So they identified the Pope and Revelation 9, and I've covered this a little bit, and I'll hit on it again as we work through Revelation. The Pope is the Antichrist, and... Um, you know, the ambassador of the devil, so to speak, and the locusts in Revelation 9 were all these friars and so on and so forth. And Catholics, in turn, because they were being attacked, came out with their own study Bible called the Douay Reims or the Reims New Testament with their notes as well. Uh, king James in 1604 was challenged as the king who really served as the monarch of the church. And so you had Baptists, who I think rightly so, wanted to separate the church from the government. So when Baptists speak of separation of church and state, it was a one-directional wall that the state should not enter into the church, but they did not believe that the church could not enter into the realm of politics. And so, and that was even in early America, how the term separation of church and state was used and it's been redefined. Some even think it's in the Constitution of the United States, and of course it's not. But in 1604, a Puritan by the name of John Reynolds approached King James I and said, I want to do a, a, a Bible, uh, a newer Bible in the English tongue, and with it there will be no study notes. And he kind of liked that idea because the Geneva Bible, which was done again by the Reformers, really attacked him as the king, not directly, but it did in the sense that, you know, it taught principles. Listen, when the king asks you to do something and it's contrary to the word of God, we must obey God rather than men. So they really define the role of monarchs as being not unconditional, but limited. And that made King James angry. And when the idea came for a new translation of the Bible, it eventually uh, supplanted the Geneva Bible. When the pilgrims and Puritans came to America, they didn't read the King James Bible. They read the Geneva Bible. But eventually, because the Geneva tongue 
uh, as it as we might describe it. Uh, the English was becoming more and more archaic, and so the 1611 eventually took place. The 1611 was soon replaced in uh, 1611, second half of the year, which is the 1611b Bible. And then there was a 1613 Bible. And if you read the preface of the 1611 Bible, they admit that some of their knowledge of Greek and Hebrew was somewhat limited and that there would be newer editions that would come out that would be more precise and more accurate to the original languages that God had. Now understand there was a long time when God's men and women didn't study the original languages. And so for a thousand years, the Bible that virtually the church read was the Latin Bible. The Latin Bible was the longest used translation of the Bible than any single tongue. And that limited it to the scholars. And one of the things of the Reformation was to try to get the Bible back into uh, the tongues of the people. So the earliest Bibles that came out in essence were study Bibles whether it was the Geneva Bible or the Tyndale Bible and a number of others that came out. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a guy by the name of Thompson, uh, Frank Thompson, and he produced a Bible called the Thompson Chain Reference Bible, which was kind of an interesting translation. Initially in the King James, they later came out with it in the New American Standard as well. And I think it's only in those two translations, but basically he created a, a series of chain references that if you were in one verse, they would say, well, here's another verse where you can topically follow that um, particular subject. So if, uh, so it's not just pure cross references where there's a word in the verse where you could find, say in another verse, it was dealing with doctrinal issues. And so it was somewhat noncommittal, didn't reflect a particular uh, set of beliefs, but Still, it was very helpful in people studying the Bible. Schofield, in many ways in the 20th century, C.I. Schofield made the study Bible approach uh, new and very popular again. Because remember, when the King James, which became the prominent translation uh, in the evangelical church in the English tongue with no study notes, when Schofield came out again with the study Bible, uh, it was bought up and gobbled up. It was certainly from a particular point of view, from a, uh, a view, what we call dispensationalism, that made a distinction between Israel and the church, that the church was not the new Israel, that God was not done with national Israel. And so Dr. Schofield had a huge influence on evangelicals. Um, he was an interesting fellow, had some personal issues I won't go into, but in the 1980s, there was a kind of reemergence of new study Bibles, largely through Zondervan. And that was done in the NIV, the New International Version. So they came out first, I think, with a woman's devotional Bible, and people just gobbled it up. The women did. And so they said, well, let's do a men's devotional Bible. And then they had the businessman's Bible and the athletic Bible. And I think they have like 50 different study Bibles in the NIV and the guy who ran Zondervan at the time was somewhat of a marketing genius. And so uh, surprising to a lot of people, the most purchased Bible in the United States is actually the NIV. 
Uh, and it's not so much because of the translation is the way it's packaged. So sometimes you ask a person, well, what translation do you use? And they say, well, I use the woman's devotional Bible or the men's athletic Bible or the businessman's Bible. No, that, that's the packaging. That's not the translation. Now, the challenge now with the NIV is that it has now uh, bridged the TNIV, which was kind of a gender neutral Bible in the NIV, they came out in 84, and in 2011, in paper, they came out with the new, new NIV. So if your old NIV is worn out and you go to the Christian bookstore to buy a new, new NIV, you're getting actually a blend of the TNIV, which is gender neutral, and the old NIV. And so they take a lot of verses, some that are okay to neutralize in the sense of, like, say the word anthropos, man, is not the word, the word man, anthropos, is used generically of men and women. And so it would not necessarily be wrong to translate it people because somebody might think, oh, he's just talking about a man versus a woman when he's not. No, he's talking about people in general. Uh, but then there are words in the Bible where it refers to a man-man in deference to a woman. It's the Greek word arnair. When a man looks at himself in the mirror, James says, he uses not as a person looks at himself in the mirror, but as a man looks at himself in the mirror. And he's making a point because the way a man looks in the mirror is very different typically than the way a woman looks at in the mirror. And he, he doesn't want you to just glance. He wants you to stare intently at the word of God so that it has an effect on your life. So with that said, when you look for a study Bible, first you got to begin with the translation. Now, I, I like, obviously, the uh, New American Standard. A new popular translation that's come out is the ESV. And one of the reasons the ESV has gained a lot of traction is because uh, the NIV has become more gender neutral and they've actually altered a lot of verses in terms of their meaning. If it says he and it's a singular pronoun, and you turn it to say they, then you change the meaning of the text. And to me, that's gone beyond translation to really a distortion of what God has said. And that's not a wise thing to do. So first, you gotta pick a translation, and, and you want really a modern literal translation. Uh, the message is, say, a paraphrase, and it's a lousy translation. In fact, uh, this so-called scholar, which is, um, you know, Eugene Peterson, uh, he put it out on Nav Press, and Nav Press, I don't think, really studied it and thoughtfully approached, you know, this new paraphrase, but they made millions of dollars off of the message when it came out. And yet they altered many of the verses. They, they altered verses that dealt with the homosexuality. First Corinthians 6, read it from the message. He leaves out homosexuality. What right does he have to do that? He has no right at all. And then he came out about a month ago and thought gay marriages were okay. And then he retracted it the day later. Why did he attract it? Because his biblical convictions changed overnight? No, I think he realized he was going to lose his financial empire. Um, I have serious doubts whether the guy even knows Christ is his personal savior. And so, you know, you want a literal translation. Uh, I like the New American Standard. The ESV has replaced English Standard Version a lot of uh, the NIV readers because they read the old New American Standard in the 70s and it was a little bit more wooden. 
uh, didn't flow as well. So when the NIV came out in 84, a lot of them gravitated to that. Now they've abandoned it because of the liberal slant that has come into it. And they think the old New American Standard hasn't changed any when it was updated in 98. And, and so they're reading the ESV. ESV is a decent translation, though I don't like the ESV study Bible because I think a lot of the scholarship behind it is weak and some of the conclusions they make are not healthy. And I go through that in my course in Bibliology. But at the minimum, you want a Bible that has cross-references. I think that would be very helpful. A cross-reference, I have like a New American Standard. I have no notes in it. It's not a study Bible, but it does have cross-references. And so out in the margin, it, it takes every single verse. And if there's a similar verse or a similar pericope or section of Scripture, say you're in the Gospels. And you're reading about the feeding of the 5,000. Well, that's the only miracle that Christ did in his public life that's recorded in all four Gospels. And so you can say, oh, it's recorded in Matthew over here and Mark here and Luke here and John here. And so you can do some cross-referencing and pick up some details. And so that's a great tool to have, a Bible with cross-references. You certainly want a Bible at least with a limited concordance in the back. So if you're looking for a verse and say, well, I know it has to do with money. And so let's see, I turn here to the back of my New American Standard and it's a very limited concordance, not like the one that Augustus Strong produced in the 19th century. And it says money, it gives me about five verses. And I know one of them is um, money in the bank, say Luke 19:23. that's talking about uh, that text about the idleness of the resources God has put in your hand that you could have at least put the money in the bank and gained interest on it. Oh, here's the verse I'm looking for. Love of money is a root uh, of all sorts of evil. Um, and so, oh yeah, I knew it was somewhere in first Timothy six. So having a limited concordance that's at your fingertips can be very, very helpful as well. I do suggest that every Christian own a paper copy of the Bible. I, I recognize that there's a lot of electronic Bibles out there, but you're not going to learn your way around the Bible in an electronic Bible. I meet people who have electronic Bibles and they don't know the order of the books because they just type in first Timothy six and they don't know that it comes after Thessalonians and so forth. So th th they're very limited in their ability to make it a tool to really help other people. I'm not opposed to electronic Bibles. Listen, I, I was the tester of what today we, we, we call logos. I was one of the original 40 testers back there. It was called back in the 1980s. It was called CD word and you used it on an external device that plugged into your computer. And it was actually faster to look up into the paper edition than it was to go through the electronic Bible. So I'm not opposed to them. I've used them for since the 1980s. But I, I don't think they're a substitute for a good paper copy, which is a blessing to have. So you want to think about translations. You want a Bible at least with cross-references. You want a Bible at least with a limited concordance. And then recognize that there are Bibles that reflect theological positions. For instance, if you had the New Jerusalem Bible, that's a Catholic Bible. And the notes are going to be very Roman Catholic in terms of their persuasion. If you're an evangelical, you probably don't want to uh, read that unless you're trying to understand Catholicism and their position, say, on a given subject. Uh, because you're not going to agree with some of the premises that they start with. The Pope is God's man and so, so on and so forth. Um, 
There are some Bibles like the open Bible that seems to be somewhat, doesn't really take a, a major theological persuasion like dispensationalism or reformed theology. Uh, but there are study Bibles that reflect a particular viewpoint. And there's probably no study Bible that you may agree on every single point in. Like John MacArthur produced a great study Bible. It's very well done. Um, and it is uh, more Calvinistic than I am. But are there some helpful notes in it? Yes. Uh, Henry Morris, he had a study Bible that he produced that's very pointed towards the creation issues. Great study Bible. Um, Charles Ryrie, certainly from a dispensational view. By that, I mean there was a distinction between Israel and the church. But the Ryrie study Bible is a good theologically sound study Bible that would be of help to you. The Thompson Chain Reference Bible is still a great work. Uh, and it, it is available not only in the King James, but in the New American Standard. So there's a lot to choose from. And then you can get down to the quality of the binder. Uh, there's a group called Evangelical Bibles. They make the single best Bibles in the world. Uh, they're made out of goat skin. They're beautiful. And they come in all kinds of different translations and um, and so forth. So anyway, uh, go to my course in Bibliology if you want to really study it in more depth, but that might get you started. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, you can also email us at tbl at wagp.us. And Kathy from Seabrook, South Carolina, did email her question in. She writes, in your pneumatology lesson on May 31st, you said... The Holy Spirit is the restrainer, and he'll be removed when the church is removed at the rapture. The Holy Spirit is very much at work during the tribulation, but his ministry will radically change after the rapture, and people will be getting saved because the Holy Spirit is working. These are heavy statements about God the Holy Spirit, and I do have many questions, but I'll stick to one basic train of thought for now. What scriptures describe this radical change in the Holy Spirit's ministry and spell it out? This is very important because how will believers in the tribulation reading the Bible know that the Holy Spirit's ministry, as taught in the New Testament, is not applicable to them? Well, you didn't exactly quote me correctly. And if you go back and you listen carefully, for instance, your first statement, the Holy Spirit is the restrainer and he'll be removed when the church is removed at the rapture. That's not exactly what I said. What I said is the Holy Spirit will be removed in terms of his presence in the church. Uh, but his ministry will continue on the earth, but in a different way. In other words, right now, the temple of the Holy Spirit is the body of Christ. And I go through that whole thing, especially in my, uh, my course on ecclesiology, though I touch on it in pneumatology. When did the church begin? The church began on the day of Pentecost. And there's a series of proofs that lock that in, that the church was not an Old Testament entity, but it's unique to the new covenant era. With that said, the Holy Spirit, his presence in the church is gone. Why? Because the church is gone. So the body of Christ is raptured. Now, obviously, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture uh, because I think that's what the Bible teaches. And if people will stick with me through the uh, teaching in the Revelation, I think I can prove that to you and I can show you why the um, post-tribulational view is actually a total impossibility. So just continue to study in our series in Revelation. But again, I have a text that I work through in that handout from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
And Paul is writing to the Thessalonians who are under incredible persecution. Uh, They were just being beaten black and blue so much so they thought, well, maybe this is that time of great tribulation that Jesus spoke of. And Paul reminds them that, listen, uh, a day will come when God will make every wrong right. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted into us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So those who afflict you, who persecute you, who kill you, who beat you up, someday God is going to deal with them justly. Then in chapter two, he reminds them now, and and I cover that verse right now just to help you to understand the atmosphere of this early church. So you could see how they might be easily uh, mistaken and susceptible to false teaching where some have said, oh, we're in the tribulation period. Just look around. Look what's happening to God's people. And of course, um, certainly they were being persecuted, but not on the same level as persecution will come during the great tribulation. So Paul begins chapter two by saying, now we request you brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. That's the rapture. Uh, The Lord Jesus shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. That's the rapture. The word caught up is the word harpazo, which in the Latin translation, which I mentioned earlier, is the word rapto, and so we have our theological term rapture. So some people say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Yes, it is. It's in the Latin Bible, and it's a theological catchword from Latin. I don't care what you call it. You can call it the harpazo if you want, or the catching up of the church, but we're going to be gathered together with him, and that's what he's talking about here in Second Thessalonians. He said in reference to our gathering together, to him that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or message or letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. They had some teaching that had come into the church, uh, a spirit. Uh, what did he mean by that? Well, remember the Bible's still being written. And so the gift of prophecy was very much at work, not as it is today in terms of a foretelling, but also a foretelling where God would give direct revelation through people. And of course, you were to test the spirits of the prophets and everything were to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And so somebody came up and they gave a prophecy, thus saith the Lord. And some people believed it without being very discerning and testing the spirits to see if they be of God. And some read a message as if from Paul. Hey, here's a letter, a new letter from Paul. Well, how do we know it's from Paul? Well, certainly if it's from Paul, it's not going to contradict anything that he's already said. And certainly Paul also gave a distinguishing mark in all of his letters as he writes in the Galatians, which by the way, is his first letter that is written in the New Testament at the end of his first missionary journey before the Jerusalem council meets. So don't, don't be taken away uh, as if the day of the Lord has come. What's the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is not like a 24 hour day. It refers to a, a, a period of time in scripture. It mimics a physical day. When I speak of the day of one's youth, I'm not saying he was a youth for one day, but I'm describing that time frame in his life when he was a youth. The day of the Lord actually 
is pictured in the Bible in two ways. This is a glorious time, but also a very dark time. And it does mimic a biblical day in that a biblical day starts at sundown. And so Jews uh, last Friday began their Sabbath Friday evening. It went until Saturday evening. So when I speak to my friend in Jerusalem, an Orthodox rabbi, he never calls me in that time. Uh, he, he calls me either before the Sabbath begins or after the Sabbath begins. And so that is a Jewish day. And so it gets darker and it gets pitch black. And then the sun comes up and it's bright and it gets dark again. That's what will mimic this time frame called the day of the Lord. It's going to get progressively darker. It will get pitch black. It will get bright again, and then it will get dark again. And when you read the Revelation, that's exactly the pattern that he gives. I think we're in the shadows of the Revelation. We, a shadow always indicates something that is forthcoming, and things are getting darker. And it's going to get pitch black after the church is removed, because the church acts as salt and light. And when the salt and the light is removed, hell is going to have a holiday. Evil is going to be unleashed on the, in the world like we've never seen it before. That very dark time is called the tribulation. But when the sun, the S-O-N comes back, who is likened in the Bible to the S-U-N and not by accident, it will be very bright when he rules and reigns for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand year period, Satan who's been bound is going to be loosed. And some of the tribulation saints who've had children and grandchildren and great grandchildren and so forth over a thousand year period is life is prolonged. Like before the days of the flood, um, they're not automatically believers. Even with Jesus ruling on the earth, they have a decision to make and not all will choose Jesus. And so Satan will be loosed one final time to try to craft a rebellion against God's Messiah. And we'll get dark again. And at the end of that darkness, we'll go into the eternal state and we'll be forever bright. And so Jesus illuminates even heaven and no need for the S-U-N because the S-O-N will do it all. So here's his point. He said, don't believe that some message or letter is it from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, why would they be susceptible to that? Because the persecution was so great. Well, maybe this is the day that Jesus spoke of. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come the day of the Lord unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is released. That's the Antichrist, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called object, every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That event is what the prophet Daniel in the ninth chapter, which Jesus quotes in the Olivet Discourse, is called the abomination of desolation. And so the 70th week of Daniel is seven years long. And right in the middle of that 70th week, the Antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple and he makes himself out to be God. So Paul is saying, listen, it's impossible for you to be in the tribulation period. Number one, the apostasy has not occurred. He's not talking about apostasy in general, but it's articular here. The apostasy. The apostasy is the apostasy of all apostasies. Apostasy is the Greek word to fall away. And the apostasy is when in a wholesale, wide, broad way, alleged Christians will reject Jesus and give allegiance to the Antichrist. This happens after the rapture of the church. 
when left behind are these nominal Christians who had never believed in the Lord Jesus, and they will give allegiance to this man of lawlessness who wasn't present, so it was impossible for them to be in the day of the Lord. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. So in that Wednesday night pneumatology course, which you date May 31st, I don't know when it was, but um, I uh, cover that and I walk through how some have interpreted the restrainer. Some have said it's government and I go through why that's an impossibility. The restrainer is God, the Holy Spirit. And uh, he is the one who is restraining sin. But when he uh, removes himself because the church is removed from the earth, then hell uh, has a new freedom. Evil has a new freedom. And so he says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, that's revelation. It tells us that, that when Jesus comes back, he's going to kill him in an instance. And then he'll be cast in his resurrection body into the lake of fire. And he will bring an end to the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. So to be saved. So the Holy spirit is very much at work during the tribulation. Why? Because he, the spirit of truth is the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. And people are saved during the great tribulation period. And he has a sealing ministry, revelation seven of sealing 144,000 Jews who are somehow converted. We're not told how, probably a Damascus Road kind of experience. And these people are sealed and protected by God and they become evangelists along with two witnesses and the gospel is preached to the whole world and then the end comes. Uh, you know, the, the, the promise that Jesus made where the gospel will go to the whole world is going to be fulfilled. Uh, every nation, tribe, and tongue are going to hear the gospel during that seven-year period. The Great Commission will be totally fulfilled. Every unreached people group in the world will be reached. That doesn't diminish our responsibility today. You know, our church is uh, helping uh, finance uh, the Bakuna translation, as we call it. There, That's a pseudonym for not a real group of people, but we can't give their real name because of the implications it would have on the translation process and the persecution of those people. But these are people who have no scripture in their language and our church by God's grace have just uh, finished the financing for three Old Testament books. And then in April of 2018, we'll do three New Testament books. And that's exciting to be able to put God's word into the uh, hands of people who have no scripture. But again, the gospel will go out to every tribe, tongue, and nation through the work of these evangelists and the two witnesses and even an angel who preaches the eternal gospel, Revelation 14. Well, what gives the gospel preached power? The Holy Spirit. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So his ministry changes because his restraint is removed. And when his restraint is removed, then the evil one through false signs, wonders, and miracles has a freedom that he didn't have before. Not to mention the Holy Spirit selectively works in different hearts. Let's keep reading. 
Uh, again, he's speaking of the lawless one, the Antichrist, who will be revealed. Uh, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That's an incredibly important statement. People who had heard the gospel prior to the rapture of the church are going to fall under the deception of wickedness. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. Every once in a while, I'll meet a Christian and say, well, look, if this rapture happens that you talk about and all the Christians are gone, then I'll believe in your Jesus. No, you will not. Because if you won't believe in him now, you certainly will not believe in them. Then why? The next verse. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding deluding influence. Not Satan, but God will send upon them a a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. So the Holy Spirit's working in a different way. He's not working in the hearts of people who prior to the rapture had heard the gospel and clarity and power. Those people, because of their love of sin, will actually believe the deluding influence. And it is a principle that you cannot test God. You cannot ignore God. You cannot uh, spurn God's commands. And Jesus taught this same truth in John chapter 12 for the people who were in his day. The difference is in 2 Thessalonians 2, he's talking about a broad a uh, powerful, incredible rejection apostasy where people will believe the lie. So in John chapter 12, uh, Jesus is doing all kinds of miracles and wonders and the, Satan's doing the same things, but there are deceptive powers and wonders and false messages. And, and then Jesus says, uh, after he does these, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light that darkness may not overtake you. In other words, do something with this revelation that you're seeing right before your eyes. He was doing miracles that were unique to the Messiah and they were ignoring them. Uh, Then he goes on to say that the darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. In other words, you close your eyes to the truth then you're not walking in the light. You respond to the light. God gives more light. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many miracles before them, so many signs, yet they were not believing in him. And he said, this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet had predicted centuries before. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause, for what cause? Because they would not respond to the light, because they would not believe. For this cause, they could not believe. So because they would not believe, they could not believe. And then he quotes Isaiah again. He, God, blinded their eyes. He, God, hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. So the Holy Spirit's ministry is very different during the tribulation. People are getting saved who had never heard the gospel through the same ministry he has today. But his ministry doesn't continue in the hearts of people who had heard it before. And because the church has been removed and the Holy Spirit who lives in the church, if you're born again, you're a temple of the Spirit, then that um, restraining influence is gone upon the earth. Listen, America is as good as it is because the church is as good as it is. 
Uh, and the more uh, evil the church gets and weak gets, the more sin spreads. We're out of time. Hope that helps. Great question. Have a